Hi everyone. Thank you very much, Adam, for inviting me. Thank you to Wharton for hosting me. So uh, my name is Adam Alter. I'm a professor of uh, psychology and marketing at NYU at Stern. And this book is about addictive tech and the rise of addictive tech and the role it's playing in our lives, the outsized role. And I became interested in this topic about three years ago when two things happened. The first thing that happened was I read about this guy. This guy's Dong Nguyen. He's a Vietnamese game developer. And he designed a game that I could not stop playing. Um, this is the game. I don't know if any of you have played this game. Anyone having flashbacks? This is Flappy Bird. It's the simplest game in history. All you have to do is make the bird not fly into walls. It's incredibly straightforward, but it's also massively addictive. So Nguyen designed this game, and it was, it was very, very popular. It took a little while to take off, but when it did take off, it did very well. At its peak, he was earning $50,000 a day in ad revenue which is not shabby if you're an independent game designer. So he designed the game and I started playing it and I found it very hard to stop. And I got curious about it and I wondered if there was something about the game that made it hard to resist. So I started to read some of the reviews for the game and they were really interesting. So they, they were this interesting mix. What you see here is, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a glowing review. Five stars is what you're looking for, but it also is killing this person which is a weird, it's a really weird tension. So this person says, Flappy Bird will be the death of me. Let me start by saying, do not download Flappy Bird. Keeping in mind, this person gives it five stars. Um, and they basically go on saying, I went to the App Store, I downloaded it. That was my first mistake. I played it once and said, okay, just one more time. Uh, that one more time never ended. I don't sleep, I don't eat, I'm losing friends, all because of Flappy Bird. <laughs> so tremendous game. Um, and... What happened in the end was Nguyen had a conscience. He grew a conscience and he felt so bad about it that despite the massive ad revenue, he pulled it from the App Store. It was the number one game on the App Store. He pulled it and he basically tweeted, I'm sorry, Flappy Bird users. I will take Flappy Bird down. I cannot take this anymore. It is not anything related to legal issues. I just cannot keep it anymore. I also don't sell Flappy Bird. Please don't ask. People were desperate. There was like a black market for Flappy Bird. <laughs> so something here was going on with this this game, and I played it for hours and hours on my iPhone. Now, the second thing that happened paired with this suggested that there was something systemic going on here. And what that was, was I started to read a little bit about how Steve Jobs thought about the iPad as a delivery device. And when he introduced the iPad in 2010, he said, what this device does is extraordinary. It offers the best way to browse the web, way better than a laptop, way better than a smartphone. It's an incredible experience. So that's obviously a glowing review of the product. But at the same time, when he was asked in 2012 what he thought about the iPad with respect to his kids, this is Nick Bilton, a tech writer for the New York Times. Bilton said to him, so your kids must love the iPad. And Job said, they haven't used it. We limit how much tech our kids use at home. <laughs> so on the one hand, he thought it was a wonderful device. That's what he was telling the world. But on the other, he was really concerned about having this device in his home. He didn't want to give it to his kids which is concerning, perhaps because he knew that if they got hold of Flappy Bird, it would be the end of them. So something is going on here. And what's interesting is beyond Steve Jobs, other tech titans have said similar things. So this is a school called the Waldorf School of the Peninsula, which is uh, in the Bay Area. And there's something really interesting about this school. It's one of the few schools around the country now that mandates a complete tech ban. No computers, no iPads, no iPhones, nothing. But what's really interesting about the school is that 75% of the kids there have parents who are sec Silicon Valley tech execs. So these are people producing tech and yet saying that their kids should go to a school where there is no tech. They realize that something is going on here. And, you know, they're right to have those concerns. There's a lot of research suggesting that these concerns are well-founded. 
Here's one of my favorite pieces of evidence. A whole lot of people of roughly your age in their 20s and 30s were asked, if you had to choose between a broken bone and a broken iPhone, which one would you choose? This is what they said. 54% <laughs> said a broken phone, which left 46% saying broken leg. And what's really interesting about this is when you watch them make the decision, even the people who say I'd rather have a broken phone agonize. They spend time. It's not like a snap decision where it's easy for them to make because these devices are so instrumental in their lives. They know that not having them will be a really massive psychological pain for them. Um, and so you, you have this crazy statistic. One of the reasons people say this, by the way, is they say, while I'm recovering from my broken bone, at least I'll have my phone to keep me company. <laughs> so that's concerning. But let me give you a sort of bigger, more reliable data set. Uh, this is a program called Moment. You can all download Moment for your phone. Some of you may have it already. It's designed by a guy called Kevin Holesh from Pittsburgh. And he designed it because he felt that he was spending too much time on his phone. It measures how long you spend on your phone every day and how many times you unlock your phone. So basically, he A-B tested it with his friends. And he asked them, how long do you think you're spending on your phone? And his friends said, about an hour and a half on average. Turns out they were spending an average of three hours a day on their phones which is pretty striking. And what that means is if you look at the waking hours in the day for the average person, the dark blue is the hours we spend at work. The light blue is the hours we spend doing survival activities like eating and bathing, which leaves the white bit. And that's the bit that you can do lots of interesting things with. Or you can fill it with the black bar, which is how long we spend on average on our phones now. So that's we're left with that little sliver of white to engage with other people, to have social interactions, to talk to our loved ones, to do the really important things in life. We're not leaving ourselves much time to do that stuff because phones get in the way, three hours a day on average for people. So this is a problem. Now, all of this falls under the banner of behavioral addiction. Behavioral addiction is basically the drive to engage in some behavior that's rewarding now, but that has really strong negative consequences in the long run. And they can be in a lot of different spheres. They can be physical, mental. So physical, if you do, say you play games for 45 days straight, as one person I'm going to tell you about did. That was bad for him. He put on 40 pounds of fat because he didn't move. Um, mental, social, financial. Social because our relationships break down. And financial, obviously, because people overshop and they don't work as much as they should. And there are a lot of different kinds of experiences that fall under this banner. There are things like um, compulsive use of phones, email, social networks, uh, video games, overwork, overexercise, compulsive shopping, gambling. And what's interesting about this is if you want to know how many people in the population at large have at least one of these issues, you may feel that you have one of them. There was a study published in 2011. Uh, Mark Griffiths, a British researcher, found that as of 2011, 41% of all adults have at least one behavioral addiction. And he predicted that number would rise. And I'm sure now, six years later, that it has risen significantly. It's probably over the 50% mark, because now iPads have really taken a hold. And when you ask people who work in behavioral addiction treatment, they all say the biggest thing to happen in behavioral addiction was first the advent of the iPhone, and then second, the advent of the iPad. So I think that number has probably risen. So let's talk about what you can do about this. Um, there are a few things that probably won't work. Cold turkey is one of them. <laughs> if you search cold turkey, there actually is a cold, like a, a cold turkey. You have that option there on Google Images, which is nice. Um, so cold turkey doesn't work for a lot of reasons. One of them is that you can't function in the world and not use tech. It's just very hard. You can't work, or it's very hard to work. It's very hard to travel. 
it's hard to just go about the business of everyday life, not to mention the social consequences of not using tech. So cold turkey is tough. Also, um, if you stop using tech, the motives that that tech is, is uh, dealing with for you. So let's say you, you are looking for social connection. If you don't get that social connection through tech, you're going to need to find it somewhere else or soothe yourself some other way. So there's some evidence that if you try not to use tech, just going cold turkey, you end up developing other forms of addiction to compensate. So that's dangerous. The other thing you can't do in the long run is one of my favorite techniques. This is Manish Sethi. And uh, he's a tech entrepreneur who lives in New York. And he went on Craigslist and he advertised for a position that he paid uh, a significant sum of money. This woman was paid to follow him around. And when he did something he didn't want to do, she was paid to slap him. <laughs> so, so she punished him every time he opened his Facebook or his email. And here you can see that, that form of punishment in action. He ended up designing a device that I, he sent to me. It costs $500. You wear it on your wrist. And you can program it to give you a zap when you do something you shouldn't be doing. It is so incredibly powerful that I hit the roof when I first used it, so I've never used it since. But people who do use it swear that it works really well. But I don't think that's a long-term solution either. So here are some things you can do. One of them is basically a series of techniques known as behavioral architecture. It's the idea that just as an architect creates a building or designs a building, you can design your own life in such a way that you can minimize harm and maximize good. So here are some things you can do with respect to tech. One of the things you can do is for part of the day, remove it from your life completely. So what I've tried to do is between 5 p.m. and 8 p.m., I put my phone in a drawer and I don't go near it. Same with my iPad. I try not to use the TV. Um, so I try to remove tech altogether for part of the day. That's one option, but some tech is going to be with you. And so you need to make sure that you do whatever you can to minimize the pull of that tech. So here's one thing you can do. I don't know if you heard that. It was subtle. But there was the ding sound that a lot of us have when we get a new email. And that, for us, ignites a set of responses that makes us feel really good most of the time. It's a sort of reward response. So one thing to do is to turn that sound off. That's pretty effective. Another thing you can do is turn off all notifications on your phone. Because what you're doing then is you're resting control from your phone. And you're, you're taking it yourself. You're deciding when to go to the phone. Because if you have push notifications, your phone is guiding you, which is the opposite of what you want to happen. Another thing to do is to make sure that your homepage on your phone doesn't have any of those addictive apps for you. If it's Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or whatever it is, remove them, put them in a folder in the third or fourth page, and make sure that you type in the search bar the name of that app. Because that's a willed behavior. That basically means that the only time you will go to this device is because you, you've willed it, you've decided that it's something that should happen. It's not that the, the app or the icon is reminding you to, to check it, which you'll do reflexively. Uh, and the fourth thing you can do, uh, this is a little small, but if you look at the bottom there, this is a Facebook post. You can see this person has 10 likes, three shares, and seven comments. There's a, a, a program now known as a, the Facebook Demetricator, which removes all the numbers. So if you look at what happens when you activate the Demetricator, it doesn't give you numbers. It just tells you that these things have happened, but not how much. And so you don't obsessively return to check over and over and over again. It's proven to be pretty effective. So those are some things you can do. Um, also, at the cultural level, there are some things we should do. And this is a bigger conversation, obviously. One of them is exemplified in the behavior of this design firm in Germany. They have tables that are tethered to the ceiling. And at 6 PM every day, no matter what you're doing, the tables rise to the ceiling, and the place, <laughs> the place turns into a yoga studio. So you'd better be finished with your work. You have no option. 
So that's one thing we could do, is sort of mandate that work ends at a particular time or do our best to do that. Another thing we can do is, you know, a lot of businesses, when I tell them this, say, we obviously want our programs to be addictive because that's how we compete in the marketplace. Well, here's one solution. These 100 calorie packs in the food industry are very popular. People will basically pay more to buy less food because what they're paying for is self-control. They're outsourcing self-control to the companies that make the food. Now, if, if social media platforms offered a slightly more expensive, I guess they're currently free, but if they said for 10 bucks a year, you can get a version of this platform that has fewer of the hooks that will addict you. Effectively, you're resting, they're resting self-control from you and doing it for you. People would pay more for that. So the businesses might be happy and you would get a better version of the program. That's one option. And finally, there are people who are known as design ethicists at these big companies. And a lot of them believe there should be a Hippocratic oath for designing tech. That just as doctors are supposed to do no harm, when you're designing tech, you should make sure that you consult with behavioral experts who ex explain to you what you should be doing to minimize the addictive hooks that are conveyed in these products. And the last thing is to understand what it is that makes you addicted in the first place. Because addiction isn't just about that rise in dopamine. It's not just about taking the drug or doing the behavior. It's what it does for you. It's what it soothes. And this is Isaac Weisberg. He's uh, a gamer from way back. He's a straight A student. He did very well in school. He played football. He was kind of the, the all-American guy. And things went wrong for him when he started playing World of Warcraft. Um, there are 100 million people who've played this game and signed up for accounts. Half of them have developed addictions. It's probably the most addictive experience in the world. Um, and Isaac had a real problem with this. He's the guy who spent 45 days playing. And the key for him was to work out what it was that was driving that. So some people play World of Warcraft because they're bullied. And it allows them to choose a really dominant avatar. And so they do really well. They feel better because they've got a dominant avatar that conquers missions and does, does really well on missions. Um, other people are lonely, and so they form guilds of friends on the platform. And for him, that was the main thing. And so he realized that if he could cultivate social, a social life outside of the game, he, that addiction would, would wither away, and that's what happened. For other people, it's about low self-esteem and conquering quests. It makes them feel efficacious. And so the key is to work out what is the underlying psychological issue that you soothe with these behavioral addictions. And the biggest thing, I think, of all is nature. It's the anti-behavioral addiction. It's the perfect place to go. It's sort of anywhere where you go where you have no idea what year it is, is a good solution. And so I think that's, that's the biggest cure of all. Thanks very much. I just want to begin by thanking you, Adam Grant, for having me here, and thanking Wharton for hosting me, and thank all of you guys for, for being here. My name is Emily Esfahani-Smith, and I'm the author of The Power of Meaning. I've been working as a journalist and a writer for, for several years now. And it's really special for me to be here with you because the idea for my book was born in this very building several years ago when I was a grad student. Uh, sitting downstairs listening to a lecture about the difference between a happy life and a meaningful life. And so I was so excited by what I heard that I eventually wrote a book about it. So it's really, it's amazing for me to be here with you in this place. I want to begin by telling you the story of a woman named Ashley Richmond, who I had the chance to spend some time with several years ago. So Ashley doesn't lead a very glamorous life. She doesn't work for a Fortune 500 company. She didn't go to a fancy school like Penn. She doesn't shop at places like Whole Foods. What she does do is spend the majority of her time shoveling animal poop from one place to another. 
Her hours are terrible, and so is her pay, and she rarely gets vacations off. And yet Ashley told me that this is her dream job. Ashley is a zookeeper who cares for giraffes, wallabies, and kangaroos at the, the, the Detroit Zoo. Ashley doesn't always feel happy or good when she's working. In fact, 80% of her time, she said, is spent cleaning animal waste, which can be physically grueling when you're dealing with large animals like giraffes. And yet, she told me that her job is really meaningful. In fact, she thinks of it as a calling. When I asked her several years ago, what makes your life meaningful, this is what she told me. My purpose, she said, isn't cleaning up animal waste. My purpose is caring for the animals and doing everything I can to make their lives as good and as rich as possible. None of the animals here, she said, chose to be here, and yet I have a responsibility to ensure that their lives are as healthy and as stimulating as I can make them. So my book was inspired by the stories of people like Ashley, people whose stories I thought weren't being celebrated in our culture and, and in our conversations about what a good life is. In our culture, we're constantly getting the message that a good life is a happy life, that we should pursue happiness and a life of comfort and ease, and that if we do, we'll end up being healthier and more successful, better liked, more attractive even. The whole point and purpose of life we're led to believe is to feel happy. But as I was reflecting on that message several years ago in this building, I realized that so many of the people who I admire most and who I look up to weren't focused on the single-minded pursuit of their own happiness. They were devoted instead to leading meaningful lives. In other words, they were focused on how they could con contribute to and improve the world around them. So these were you know, the quiet heroes of everyday life, the nurses, the teachers, the parents, the plumbers, the bureaucrats, who through their contributions helped made the world go round. But there were also the great men and women of history, Socrates and the Buddha, Martin Luther King Jr. and Mother Teresa, people who led hard lives but good lives. So I think at this point I should say I don't have any problems with happiness. I, I like to feel happy and I want the people I love to be happy as well. But I do think that the happiness zeitgeist has led us astray. So happiness is a positive emotion. It comes and goes. It's ephemeral. And scientists have found that when we chase happiness and when we set it as our goal and pursue it single-mindedly, that we ultimately end up feeling unhappy and even lonely. But it's different with meaning. So meaning, the defining feature of a meaningful life is connecting and contributing to something that's bigger than you are. And when we devote ourselves to this, when we devote ourselves to leading meaningful lives, we ultimately experience a deeper and more enduring form of well-being. We feel more satisfied, more at peace, more content. And I think this makes sense because human beings are meaning-seeking creatures. We yearn for meaning. When we look up at the stars, for example, we don't see random balls of fire. We see constellations. We see warriors and bears. We craft myths and stories about what we see. We wonder about our place in the universe, how the world came to be, how we can make our individual lives count in the grand scheme of things. We all want to know that our lives amount to more than the sum of our experiences, that they matter. We all need a why or reason to help us get through the good and the bad of life. And no two people I found researching my book will necessarily have the same why. 
So for the last several years, I've traveled all across the country and I've spoken to dozens of people about what makes their lives meaningful. People like Ashley, but also a former drug dealer, an astronaut, a woman dying of cancer. I spoke to psychologists and sociologists and philosophers. And I wanted to know what exactly the building blocks of a meaningful life are and how we can build them up in our own lives. Along the way, no two people told me the exact same things. We all find meaning in our own individual ways. At the same time, there were four themes I found that came up again and again in the stories that I heard and in the research that I read. When people talk about what makes their lives meaningful, they talk about having a sense of belonging. So being in relationships where we feel valued and like we matter and where we treat other people like they're valued and like they matter. They talked about having purpose, so something worthwhile to do with their time. They talked about storytelling or crafting narratives that help them understand themselves and their place in the world. And they talked about transcendence, these moments in nature or through prayer and ritual where they felt a sense of self-loss and connected to something much bigger than themselves. So those are the four pillars or building blocks of a meaningful life. Purpose, uh, belonging, storytelling, and transcendence. So I talk about all of them in my book, but I want to dive a little bit more closely into storytelling right now, because I think it might be the most interesting and perhaps unexpected of the pillars. So storytelling is really about your own life story. What's the story that you tell yourself about your life? It's the act of taking our experiences and weaving them into a narrative that explains who we are and where we came from. It's, it's how we make sense of our experiences and the person that we've been. And it's the act itself and not necessarily even sharing our story with others that really builds meaning because it provides a framework. It helps us see the patterns within our lives and it gives our lives a sense of coherence and integration. But not all stories, it turns out, are created equal when it comes to leading a meaningful life. The psychologist Dan McAdams at Northwestern University has studied people leading meaningful lives, and he's found that they all tell particular kinds of stories about their lives. In particular, they tell stories of redemption, which are stories that move from bad to good. So let me give you an example. I spoke to a man several years ago named Carlos Ayer. So Carlos, he's in his 50s now, and he grew up in Havana, Havana, Cuba. And he was just a child when the Cuban Revolution happened. And he talks about the revolution as the place in his, where his narrative broke in two. So before the revolution, he was leading a really happy, pampered life in Havana, doing what mischievous boys do. And after the revolution, he was forced to flee to America. His parents did not come, so he was an orphan. He lived in dire poverty, uh, experienced discrimination daily for being Cuban. So it was, it was a very difficult life. And yet, as he was telling me his story, he said, even though that was hard, and even though the revolution completely changed the path of my life, I grew as a result of it. I became a more compassionate person because I suffered, and so I began to understand the suffering of others more deeply. My spiritual life deepened, he said. I was able to discover what my purpose ultimately is, which is he's a historian, so he, that, that's what his purpose is. It was difficult for him, and it took him years to make sense of that traumatic experience in his life. And it was a painful process, but it was one that ultimately brought him a sense of peace and resolution about a difficult chapter in his life story. Now, you can imagine Carlos taking the same exact events and experiences and crafting a very different type of story about them. So he could have said, 
I was leading a really wonderful life in Cuba in my childhood, and then the revolution happened, and it, it ruined everything. He never saw his father again, for example. But he didn't tell that story. He chose to tell a different story. And psychologists find that when people tell the negative kinds of stories, the stories that move from bad, from, excuse me, from good to bad, I was in Havana, Cuba, and then the revolution happened, and then everything was ruined, that they actually experience more depression, and they're more likely to experience their lives as less meaningful. But Carlos chose to tell a different story, and we all have the power to do that. We're all the authors of our own stories. We can interpret our stories, we can revise them, and we can edit them to lead more meaningful lives and to experience more meaning in life. And one of my favorite studies about this was actually by Adam Grant and a researcher at the University of Michigan named Jane Dutton. And they had uh, participants come into their lab and they divided them into two and they told half of them to tell a story about themselves being a generous person. And they told the other half to tell a story about themselves as being the recipient of someone else's generosity. And what they found was that the people who told the story about themselves being generous ultimately went out after the study and were, were more generous. The story they told changed their behavior and led them to lead life in more meaningful ways. There's a myth in our culture that this search for meaning, that leading a meaningful life is some grand pursuit, that you have to cure cancer or write the great American novel in order to lead a meaningful life. But that's not true. If you want to lead a meaningful life, be a storyteller. Take 10 minutes of your day and reflect on what the defining moments of your life are. Ask yourself, how do these experiences make me grow? It might be a painful process because some of us are shaped most profoundly through suffering and loss, but try to find a positive meaning in those experiences. We all have the power to tell and to retell our life story in more positive ways. So tell a story that moves you forward. Thank you. Thank you again to uh, Adam and for putting on this event. I'm really honored to be able to speak to you today about Stretch. My name is Scott Sunshine, and I'm not just the author of Stretch, but I'm also a professor of organizational behavior at Rice. Now, before I got into academia, when I was around the age of many of you in this room, I was working my first job in Washington, DC, and I got a phone call out of the blue from a recruiter. And the recruiter said, come to Silicon Valley. There's lots of excitement here. We'll pay you a lot more money. We'll give you a lot of stock options. We'll feed you breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day. Uh, this is a job uh, you should be taking. Uh, so three weeks later, I left family and friends, and uh, I took the job. I never really reflected on why I was taking the job. And of course, when I got there, there was also some rather bizarre behavior, too, because the way that organizations were judging their success was very much about what type of resources they were getting. How much venture capital could they raise? How many new employees would come in each week? How many customers could they get, notwithstanding if even these customers were actually profitable? If any of you remember pets.com, of course, that was the, the poster trial of the dot-com error. So that got me starting to think about some of these uh, behaviors where we're so focused on our lives around chasing resources, because we develop this dependence that we think in order to find success and satisfaction, we need more resources. And we orient all of our energy and all of our efforts to trying to get more resources as opposed to doing more. 
And oftentimes, that's because we think that is the only pathway to success and satisfaction. So that started getting me thinking, and I've been doing research uh, ever since, about well, what might be an alternative way of doing this. And that led me to the idea of stretching, which is a, a simple but powerful shift in how we think about resources. Everything from time, money, relationship, connections, knowledge. It's not so much what we have, it's how do we use those resources? How can we be more creative in using what we have? So there's some important differences in how our mindset approaches resources. When we are stretching, we believe that any resource is changeable. So we're trying to get a picture hung on the wall and we don't have a hammer. We don't give second thought. We just take the shoe off of our foot and we, we get the job done. When we're chasing, we got to find that hammer. We got to search and search for it. If we don't have it, we're going to go out and get it. When we're stretching, our whole focus is on how do we expand what we have to do more with it? How might we take what we know in one context and put it in another context? As opposed to when we're chasing, it's all about what are we going to do to acquire the next thing? Because unless we acquire that next thing, we can't actually do more. We can't take ourselves to the next level. We can't become happier if we don't have it. And often what's driving this chasing behavior is what psychologists call social comparisons. We look around at our friends, our colleagues, our neighbors, and we see what they have. And we think we need the same in order to find that success and satisfaction. But what's lost in this whole process are the goals that we have. What are the inward goals that we're actually trying to accomplish? For most people, it really isn't just about getting more resources. Those are usually, ends, uh, those are usually means to a certain ends. But we lose sight of what our actual goals are when we're chasing. So stretching is the psychology of resourcefulness and helping teach us what we can do better with what we have. But when we think of resourcefulness, we usually think of something that's used for those in less fortunate circumstances. So it could be for the poor or maybe someone uh, who had just come to this country and doesn't know a lot of people or have a lot of money. Well, my challenge in the book is really about how do we embrace the same psychology of resourcefulness? Because if you look at the history of uh, many successful people who've also found satisfaction in their lives, they started off resourceful. They started off with not a lot. And then the challenge is how do we maintain this type of mindset as we find ourselves with access to more and more resources? Can we maintain that scrappiness? The same thing with organizations. We have the classic garage startup. But as organizations grow, they want to show their uh, success, so they tend to change the way that they, they do business. So what I'd like to convince you of uh, is there are, there are times where if we embrace less, we can actually end up doing more. And this same notion of resourcefulness that fuels a lot of success and satisfaction early in our careers, um, when our backs are against the wall, can help bring us success as we move forward. So the first thing is to own it. Now, ownership is not a word that you think would describe a retail employee who barely makes above minimum wage. But what I learned in my research is that it has a profound impact on the way that people approach their resources. And I'll tell you an example. I was uh, doing a study of a chain of women's fashion boutiques. And I went to the most successful store in this chain and to the most successful employee in this company. And I said, tell me how you do it. Well, what he did is he gave me an example. He told me about this time where he had a whole host of dresses that weren't selling. He quite frankly described them as a piece of crap. I mean, they were falling off the hanger. No one wanted to buy them. So what he did is rather remarkable. He took a pair of scissors and he cut the straps off. Then he rolled up the dress, he put a tie around it, and created a sign and said, beach cover up. It went from a worse seller to a bestseller. 
Now, in many organizations, of course, this would get you fired, right? It's called damaging the goods. <laughs> in this organization, he was celebrated. I spent the next two years traveling around the country, talking to his colleagues, and hearing about their own cut-off-the-straps moments. And it wasn't just about physical products. It was how they thought about training, how they thought about customer service, how they thought about operations. And the overarching pattern in the data was this. When we believe that we own, not literally own, but psychologically own our resources, we give ourselves the license, that creative freedom, to solve problems in ways that are not anticipatable. Two, constraints unleash creativity. And the land of chasing constraints are absolutely terrible because we judge the worth of projects and we even judge the worth of ourselves by how many resources, who's got the bigger office, who's got more people on their team, who's got the largest budget. But it actually turns out that there are times where having less unlocks that creativity to allow you to solve problems. So in one study, what researchers did is they brought in groups of students and they randomly divided them into two groups. Group A was told, think about a time as a child when you grew up not having a lot. That was the scarcity group. The second group were told, think about a time growing up when you did have a lot. That was the abundance group. Both groups were then told to solve a practical problem. The university's computer lab had some extra bubble wrap. What should we do with this? Well, it turns out that simply thinking about scarcity led to more creative and innovative ideas. And the reason is rather simple. When we surround ourselves with abundance, the way that the mind works is it focuses on the most conventional way of using a resource. But when we embrace scarcity and we think about scarcity, we give ourselves that license to use objects and think about objects in very different ways. So in this case, having less gave us the freedom to actually do more. All right. Three, outsiders solve problems. And I should probably start with a caveat that I don't mean to diminish expertise. You know, if someone were the, you know, one of you were to come into my office for office hours and say, you know, Dr. Sunshine, I need a tooth pulled, I would send you to the dentist and tell you I'm not that type of doctor. So there's a, there's a reason why we have experts. But there's also something to be said about the role of outsiders, those who actually know less about a specific topic. So in one study, what researchers did is they looked at all of the studies that examine the relationship between expertise measured by the amount of practice someone has and how it relates to performance. And it turns out that for games like chess, the relationship between performance and expertise is 26%. Now that's not bad, although my guess is it's probably lower than you would have guessed. When it comes time to music, it's 21%. Sports, 18%. This next one gives me a lot of pause because it's education and it's largely college students. Uh, it's 4%. And professional work, it's less than 1%. Now, there's also a clear pattern in the way that the data are trending, which is essentially as you move from structured activities like games, where the rules are known in advance and they never change, to less structured activities, where the rules are often changing or unknowable, and these are the things where we spend most of our waking lives doing, the role of expertise dramatically diminishes. And the reason for this is quite simple. Experts are very good at what they're doing, but they use tools in very specific ways because that's, that's how they've been trained. So they have a hard time applying their tools to different types of problems when the environment changes around them. This was backed up by some other research that looked at 
10, 10 different countries, 166 scientific labs. Researchers wanted to ask a very simple but important question. What is the relationship between what you know about a specific scientific domain and your likelihood to actually solve a problem in that domain? Seems like a straightforward question. And in fact, they found a positive relationship. The more that someone knew about a specific scientific domain, the less likely they were to solve the problem. In other words, biologists were better at solving the chemistry problems than the chemists, and vice versa. Four, success comes from doing, not planning. Now again, there's important times in our lives where we want to plan, but we often overplan, and we overplan and we trick ourselves into thinking that the reality that's captured in our plans, all of that information, all of that data, is actually true. When the reality is, is it's very hard to know what's going to happen in five years. In fact, it's very hard to know what's going to happen in the next day in the times that we find ourselves in uh, right now. And in fact, if you look at the research, there's very little correlation between strategic planning and organizational performance. So I learned this firsthand. The very first class I taught was at the University of Michigan. I was still a PhD student. It was undergraduate introduction to management class. And lo and behold, this is probably no surprise to many of you in the room, but when you put participation in the syllabus, lots of people want to participate. So I had a treasure trove of hands up in the air. Everyone was vying for airtime. So I thought, OK, there's a really simple way of managing this. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to say, OK, you're going to talk, then you, then you, then you. And I'd literally go around the horn in the classroom, and I'd designate eight or nine different people uh, to speak. But what would happen is, I'd get to the fourth or fifth person, and with the bravado that you might have in some of your classes in Warden, where someone is just so confident that what they're saying is the most remarkable thing, they deliver, yeah, you guys are all laughing for a reason, they deliver, they deliver you know, this, this comment, and they'd be so proud, and they'd have that big smirk on their face, and everyone else in the room had a look of horror. And they couldn't figure out why. Why is everyone looking at me so funny? Well, it turned out what they did is they had just repeated the exact comment of the person sitting right next to them who had just spoken. So we have a name for this. It's called the next in line effect. And what happens is when we are so focused on preparation and we have a speaking order, so like I had a speaking order, the mind shuts out as much as nine seconds before it's our turn to speak and as much as nine seconds after it's our turn to speak. And that makes sense, because those nine seconds before, we're planning our performance. We want to we get that plan. We want that really clever comment that we actually miss what just unfolded in front of us. And those nine seconds afterwards, we're thinking, how did I perform? Did I meet the plan? Was it well received? And so we end up not listening. So what I try and do is you know, put some more improvisational activities into my classroom to get people to more spontaneously just start acting and get out of this idea that when we plan everything, we end up with better results. And I think I want to kind of leave you with uh, one story that really captures this. I'm guessing no one in the room knows who this is. Anyone? Be really surprised. You might know his name. His name is Dan Wyden. He's an advertising executive. And one day, he had a problem on his hands. He had a client who needed a slogan to kind of make all of the different media campaigns come together. So Dan Wyden, as a kind of resourceful person, he was in the scrappy makeshift office. It was in the basement of a building because he couldn't afford prime real estate. He didn't even have a phone. Back then, there were no cell phones, so he had a pay phone. That was his office phone. With his back up against the wall, he had a deadline, and he recalled uh, a rather bizarre situation for what he was trying to accomplish. About 10 years before, a, a man by the name of Gary Gilmore, who was not a very nice person, uh, was in the news because he had killed two people. 
Gilmore was a lifelong criminal, you know, not a horrible person. But unlike many people on death row, Gary Gilmore did not uh, wanted to die right away. So his mother interjected, and Gary Gilmore's, go away. I really want to just die, Mom. And he kept saying this to all of these associations. When it was finally his turn to die in the execution chamber, his last words were, let's do it. <laughs> so that gave Dan Wyden enough material to finish his job. Because his advertising slogan that he came up with is arguably the most successful one in business history. And I think it's a great example for three reasons. Uh, one is you think about the context in which Dan Wyden produced this. Back against the wall, time constraints, came up with this idea. Two, you think about what he repurposed, something that didn't seem valuable at all. I mean, first of all, you won't find this on the Nike homepage. I can tell you that for sure. <laughs> but he, he took the slogan of a lifelong criminal, his last words, and turned it into this cultural icon that has sold lots and lots of stuff and changed our society. Because it's that third part that I really want to emphasize here, because the phrase itself really activates us to start doing things and not to wait for the plan or the ideal resources. Think about how many times you might hear from other people or you might even say to yourself, if I only had more time or more money or more information or more connections, this is what I could do. When we're, we're stretching, the time to act is right now. So what I'd like to leave you with is just to reflect on those times where you think that you don't have enough. Are there ways that you might be able to better use what you have to stretch those resources and find great success and satisfaction? Thank you. A couple of months ago, I got a call from my daughter's school. She's in the second grade. It was about 3 p.m. and she was crying uncontrollably. At the end of the school day, all of her friends had left for a birthday party that she knew nothing about. Now, she was invited to the party. It's just that it wasn't on my calendar, it wasn't on my husband's calendar, and so she didn't know about it. And suffice it to say, she was devastated. Sad story, right? Well, here's the thing. This exact scenario has happened on more than one occasion, and it gets worse. I can anticipate that this exact scenario is going to happen. There's something that I could do in order to prevent it from happening, but on more than one occasion, I haven't. I have intentionally dropped the ball. Now, before you start throwing tomatoes at me because I must be a very evil person or at least a very bad mom, I would love to take you back in time to tell you how we got to this moment. Um, my name is Tiffany Dufu. My life's work is advancing women and girls. That's pretty much why I'm on the planet. So my life is very simple. I know what's on my tombstone and I'm just kind of project managing my life backwards. That is how I find meaning, right? That's the story that I choose to tell. And for most of this journey, I've been very focused on this one problem around women's advancement, which has to do with women's leadership. This is a study by McKinsey and Lean In. Basically, you won't be surprised to know that even though women are half the population and half 
of entry-level employees, by the time you get to the C-suite, we're at about 19%. And this is true for pretty much every sector of our society. We're hovering about 18 or 19%. These numbers haven't really changed for the past 20 years. And I've been trying to figure out what are we going to do about this? Now, for most of my career, I've been focused on collective solutions to the women's leadership problem. Things like equal pay for equal work, affordable childcare, right? Flexible workplace practices, public policy, corporate practices, cultures where women can really bring their full selves to the table. And the reason why I feel that women's leadership is really important is because to me, it doesn't matter so much what you care the most about. It could be the environment. It could be the healthcare. It could be education. At the end of the day, there are people sitting around tables that look just like this, in nice, sometimes they're marble, sometimes they're wood, but they're usually in big plush leather chairs. And these people at the highest levels of leadership are making decisions that impact every single one of us. For most of our time in this country, though we have a few notable exceptions that we love to celebrate, this group of people sitting around these tables are largely men, they're largely white, they're largely straight and able-bodied and wealthy. And make no mistake, I have a lot of friends who are white and male and able-bodied and straight and wealthy. There's nothing wrong with that group of people. It's just that we've got enough research now that shows that a diverse group of people coming together to solve a problem leads to a more innovative outcome. So I figure that one of the things that we can do to solve some of our most complex problems is to bring a more diverse group of people around these tables. I think that that would do the world a very, a very, very good thing. The challenge is that Although we don't have that many people of color, women of different disabilities, people from the LGBT community sitting around these tables, I found that these collective solutions, especially about four or five years ago, started to in some ways be insufficient in order for us to solve this problem. And it happened basically because I got very overwhelmed trying to manage the number of requests that I was getting for coffees and lunches and meetings. And many of you might be at a place in your leadership where you're constantly getting pinged and you're constantly getting these kinds of requests. And I decided that I would start saying yes to every single one of them. Now, I do not advise this, it's just that my life's work is advancing women and girls, and so I felt the need to sit down and have a conversation with every woman that reached out to me. And one of the things that I observed in these conversations is that while I was very focused on helping women to aspire to more ambition, to be a CEO, to be a senator, to be a business mogul, most of the conversation was around very personal things, very personal aspects of their lives. And I found over and over again this very direct correlation between a woman's ambition, her desire to be at the highest levels of leadership, and the amount of work or responsibility she felt in her personal life, usually on the home front. And one of the questions that I often got in relationship to this was to me a very personal question that had nothing to do with all of the big public policies or corporate practices that I was preaching about, which was, Tiffany, I just wanna know, how are you managing all of these things? How are you managing being a wife and being a mother and running an organization and doing things like writing books? And I began to tell my personal story. And in doing so, I had to share what 
I felt at that time was my dirty feminist secret, which was that for most of my career, even though publicly I was this staunch advocate for women and leadership, that I felt an enormous amount of pressure at home. This is a Time Magazine report, and you should go back and look at it because one of the things that blew me away was this idea that 80% of young women, millennial women, felt that it was important to be the perfect mom. The perfect mom. So not only did I have all of these responsibilities at home, I felt this pressure to execute them flawlessly. And even though I was always talking about how women's roles in the public sphere needed to be disrupted, I was essentially on Stepford Wife autopilot at home. And I didn't want anyone to know this. Now, this autopilot was particularly driven by this phenomenon that I talk about in the book called HCD. This is called home control disease. It's basically when you feel that everything in your home should be done a particular way, which is basically your way. And I know no one in this room has ever had a case of HCD. I had a very, very, very bad case. And it manifested in all kinds of small little things that it amounted to something big. So for example, I loved fresh food. I loved to cook. And I would cook almost every day. So let's say on Monday I made meatloaf. And on Tuesday I made fajitas. And on Wednesday I made fried chicken. On Thursday, when my husband was at home by himself because I was off to some work meeting, I would expect him to eat the meatloaf first. Because I had all of these running expiration dates in my head for all of the leftovers that were in the fridge. And when I would come home and he'd eaten the fried chicken, I would open the fridge and I would be like, why did you eat the fried chicken? Why didn't you eat the meatloaf? And he would say, well, baby, I really like your fried chicken. And I would say, so you don't like my meatloaf? And he would know not to say anything else. Now, this seems very small and insignificant, the difference between meatloaf and fried chicken, but it manifested in all these other kinds of ways. For example, I used to feel that it was important that all of the hangers in the closet face the same direction. And I would go back through and I would fix them. We have an amen here. We're in church now. This is great. Okay? I also used to feel that it was very important to take all of the mail from the mailbox and deal with it on the same day, to like get rid of all of the junk mail and open the envelopes because otherwise it would pile up and that would just mean more work for me. I also felt that it was really important that all of the towels in the linen closet be folded a certain way. And I would actually be really annoyed when people wouldn't fold them correctly and I would go back and fix it. One of the things that was really important to me was that whenever someone sent you a birthday party invitation, that you responded right away. Because if you didn't, that person would think that you were very rude and you might even miss the party. Now, I want to be clear that for all of my obsession in hindsight about what needed to happen at home, I thought of myself as a very modern woman very ambitious woman. My husband and I were in this very modern couplehood, even though if you had done an analysis of our household division of labor in 1997, we've been married for 20 years, it was the same as a couple in 1950, right? And we never really questioned this. Now, I was able to maintain pretty much flawlessness at home and at work for many, many years and thought I was so big and bad and in control until this one life-changing event, which was that we had a child. And if there are any parents in the room, you can already predict that basically my perfection at home and at work spiraled downhill rather rapidly. And so I had to figure out 
how I was going to drop some balls. And I want to be really transparent with you. I didn't intentionally decide to drop balls in the very beginning. I basically just got so overwhelmed and stressed that I started dropping them. And what I discovered was that the world didn't fall apart. Like no one came to read me my Miranda rights because I didn't pay the parking ticket. And no one ever called me to say, I'm not going to be your friend anymore because you missed the birthday party. There are three things very quickly that I want to share with you that I had to learn to drop in this journey. The first ball that I had to learn to drop was this unrealistic expectation about who I was supposed to be. Because what I realized is that I had spent a lot of time trying to fulfill different roles. My first role was daughter. Maybe yours was daughter or son. I became a friend. I was a sister. I was a student, a worker. Eventually, I became a wife and a mother. And by default, I put, like many women, do, and quite frankly, many men do, the word good in front of all of my roles. So it wasn't sufficient to be a daughter. I had to be a good daughter. It wasn't sufficient to be a student. I needed to be a good student and a good worker and a good friend and a good wife and a good mother. And it turns out that for all of those roles that we play, there's actually a job description. No one ever told us what the job description was, but I promise you there's a job description for each one of those roles. For example, in order to be a good sister, and I'm the oldest of four girls, you have to respond to your sister's text messages within two minutes. Otherwise, they'll think that, that you don't love them, right? In order to be a good mom, you have to be there when your child takes their first step, right? In order for you to be a good husband, you have to aspire to be a breadwinner at all costs. Even the cost of spending time with your family, even the cost of supporting the women in your lives. And so what I had to do was move from being obsessed with performance of these roles to figuring out what really mattered most to me. Where did I find meaning and how was I going to use that to shape my story? The second ball that I had to learn to drop was this ball about what I was supposed to do. A few years ago, I did a workshop with a group of women. There were about 70 in the room, and it was supposed to be this time management workshop. And I asked all of them to write down everything you expected to complete in an ideal day. And I mean every single little thing. Start with you get up, you go to the gym. Maybe you lie in bed for 20 minutes thinking about how you were supposed to go to the gym. Right? You get up, you get dressed, you have a commute, you prepare for meetings, every single little thing until you can't think of anything else. And then I asked them to write down next to every single one of those things how long you felt it would take to complete each and every one of those items. And then I asked them to sum the total at the bottom. Well, you won't be surprised to know that not one person in the room had a list that amounted to less than the 24 hours that any of us have in a day, and only half the women in the room had put sleep on their list. And I had in that moment what I call a Tiffany's epiphany. <laughs> Basically, I thought, well, it's no wonder that so many of us are walking around with such feelings of inadequacy when our expectation about what we're supposed to do, even in one given day, is woefully, woefully unrealistic. It's actually humanly impossible to complete what most of us think we're supposed to be doing in an ideal day given the 24 hours that we all have. And so I had to figure out what is my highest and best use. Instead of managing my life on default and just doing all of the things and creating a bunch of to-do lists, what is my highest and best use in achieving one of the things that matters most to me? The third ball that I had to drop was the most ironic ball for someone whose life's work is supporting and helping other people, which is that I had to get over this fear of asking for help. 
Okay. And it was really, really bad for me, folks. I, I would say that I was more afraid of asking for help <laughs> um, than I was of actually dropping balls. And one of the people that I learned in my drop the ball journey to engage and to get help from was my husband. In fact, one of the things that I delegated with joy to him was the management of our kids' social calendar. You know, it's a role that oftentimes in relationships defaults to the woman, but it turns out that the person who is the social butterfly in the relationship is the person who is often best equipped to manage the children's social calendar. So here's the thing though, even though I've been through this drop the ball journey and it's been really, really rewarding for me, one of the things that I've learned is that the world hasn't quite evolved for women who have dropped the ball or really families who have. For example, no one ever sends a child's birthday party invitation to their dad. Sometimes I commit this tiny act of defiance when I get it in my inbox and I send it back to the person and I say, thank you so much for inviting Akua or Kofi to the party. They're father manages their social calendar. Can you please send him the E and then I give his email address. But sometimes with the onslaught of everything that's coming at me, my email box, the meetings rushing from here to there, I start relentlessly asking myself my drop the ball question. Is responding to this birthday party invitation my highest and best use in raising conscious global citizens? And the answer is no. And so I move on to the next thing. And that's how we ended up with this situation in which my daughter missed the birthday party. This is Ekua. She just turned eight on Saturday. So she had her own birthday party on Saturday. She loves donuts with pink frosting and sprinkles. And a couple of months ago, on the day that she missed someone else's birthday party, even though I had no ounce of guilt, I felt a lot of empathy for her because she was heartbroken on that day. And so I brought her a donut and I read her her favorite story. Every time I share this, I usually have people in the audience or that come up to me afterward and they say, Tiffany, I get it, but I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it, especially when you showed that picture of Akua and she was really, really cute and she had her donut. And I want every single one of you in this room to know that I completely understand and I was there. It's just that in the seven years since I've dropped the ball, I've been able to run a national women's leadership organization. I've raised millions of dollars for women's and girls' causes. I've even written a book called Drop the Ball that I hope will reach a lot of women and to help them with their journeys. And if, if anything that I've done in the past seven years helps to create a world in which my little Ekua can grow up to aspire to be anything that she wants to be, I just feel like it's worth it. I feel like it's worth it for her to miss one or two birthday parties. And that's what I want to share with you today. So thank you so much. Hi, good evening. Uh, I'm Kelsey Crow. I'm the author of There's No Good Card for This, What to Do and Say When Life is Scary, Awful, and Unfair to the People You Love. 
And I am also feeling like a lot of self-improvement <laughs> efforts are going to be uh, going my way after your presentations. I wrote the book based on work that I and several other people do for an organization I founded called Help Each Other Out. And we create tools that are practical, that make it easier for us as friends, as colleagues, as neighbors, even as strangers, to support each other when we're going through something difficult. That could be loss, illness, divorce, you name it. Any difficult time that can make us shy away when we don't know what to do or say. And I open the book with a story that I want to share with you tonight. And it's actually a story that happened between me and my friend Katie. Katie and Kelsey, two moms, were out for a run one morning. As the two friends ran slowly up a hill, Katie chatted idly about herself. What should I do this weekend? Maybe a movie, though I need a haircut. Something short? Should I get bangs again? Then Kelsey slowed to a stop. Katie, Kelsey said, I was diagnosed with breast cancer yesterday. Katie's mouth went dry. What do I say? I'm so sorry, she said. That must be so horrible for you. And then she said, have you seen Terms of Endearment? The two friends were at the bottom of the hill now. They stopped again, and Kelsey, as if catching her breath, stared at her incredulously. The movie? Yeah, Katie said, with Deborah Winger. Right, and she's a mom who dies of breast cancer. Oh, Katie's mind tumbled and turned. She was talking about that movie, but she meant to reference another part, a funny part. Humor was always Katie's first resort for everything, including being scared. We've all been there, haven't we? Where you regret the thing that you said or did, and you're driving in the car cringing. We've also, also, we've also all been that person in pain. We may not have experienced the same situation as somebody else, but we know what it is to be in our darkest hour. You may, for example, be a stranger to the loss of a significant loved one, but you may be no stranger to being lost and profound grief. You may be a stranger to losing your job, but you are no stranger to having your confidence broken. Tapping into our shared experience of pain, even when our situations that envelop that pain are different, is the practice of empathy. And that's why in my work with Help Each Other Out and in the book, I talk about practical things to say and do, and I also talk about empathy and how we can feel confident that we actually already know what to do. Being in pain and not knowing what to do shows us that we are not on the A-team. And as anybody who's been in a difficult time knows, being on the B-team is no fun. Grief rearranges your address book. Grief is a time for us to know who you can count on and who you can't. And yet, if, if it is so important for us to be there for each other, if it is so important that we connect, why don't we? And that's where I named three empathy roadblocks to showing up. These may be that I don't have the time 
right? Our lives are busy, they're full. Who has the time to add one more person onto their plate? It may be that I don't want to make things worse, that what I do or say is actually going to make someone feel even worse than they already do. Or we feel like we don't want to pry, that I don't belong in this situation, that they wouldn't want me to acknowledge what they're going through. But here's the thing. We're making this all way harder than it has to be. And I learned this from my daughter, Georgia, who was five years old at the time. We were driving, and she asked me from the back seat, Mom, what do you do for a living? And that's a difficult question for me, but I ventured a response, and I said, Georgia, I try to help friends be there for each other. Oh, she said, that's easy. She should not do PR for my book. <laughs> I said, it's easy. Why? What would you do? And she said this. You gave some ideas of what friends can do for each other when they're sad. Friends can say I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Do you want to play with me? Want to sit down with me? Mm-hmm. Also, um, do you want to take a break? Do you want to have a little hug? That's it. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> Except I'm not, right? It sounds so simple, and simple isn't always easy. Something happens to us from when we're that age to now where we become all self-conscious about how to be there for a friend. And a lot of that boils down to us believing that we have failed in the past to connect and that we are actually just not good at this. There must be, we imagine, some perfect person out there with the perfect gesture that could heal this person's pain. But if you've been in pain, is that perfect person the one you're looking for to support you? Usually it's the opposite. We're not looking for the perfect person to help us in our darkest hour. And we are not looking for the perfect gesture to get us through our difficult time. And this, I realize, is very instrumental when thinking about how we can reach out to others in their difficult time. I have here gesture cards, which ask people to describe something that got them through their difficult time. Often, these are acts that are remembered, recalled from years back and that people still remember today. And here are some examples. Talking. Just the opportunity to talk about what you're going through. My sister came to my house after a terrible breakup and made me something to eat. She doesn't normally come over. It meant a lot. My auntie babysits my brother when my mom gets medicine. I had a miscarriage, and my colleague sent me a beautiful bouquet of flowers with a lovely heartfelt message attached. A friend I hadn't heard from in years wrote a card that said, you are in the hands of many capable people, including your own. How many of these gestures require a significant grasp of human psychology? How many of them actually take a lot of time?
not much. We put a whole lot more pressure on ourselves to be the perfect person than anyone in a difficult time is. I did a lot of research asking people what worked for you and what didn't to get you through your difficult time. A lot of that is the basis of the book and of my workshops. And I presented this opportunity for people to talk with me as an opportunity to vent. Get this off your chest. This person didn't do this. This person didn't do that. They should have done this, and they should have done that. And what they would tell me over and over again was the value of just showing up, that that's what they remembered more than what anybody said or did. And that was very hard for me to believe because I was really looking to stay out of the doghouse. <laughs> and I wanted rules for the road to keep others safe. I could not believe that really just showing up was so important. And then I went to a training by Dr. Garfield. He founded a nonprofit called Shanti that helps people, uh, volunteers who care for the sick and dying. And in his training, he opens it up by saying, people want skills. They want to know how to do this, how to do that. But more than skills, what really, really gets you trust is the kindness that brings you to them in the first place. And I should have realized this, just from my own personal story. Because obviously, a lot of people have this cringe-inducing experience of not knowing what to do or say, right? We've all been there. Then we shake it off and move on. But I couldn't move on. And this is the reason that I started Help Each Other Out. You see, I only grew up with my mom. I didn't know my dad, and I had no extended relatives. She was my tiny, very loving family. She also had schizophrenia. And when I was 19, she stopped taking her psychotropic medication. And when I was 23, she became so paranoid that she changed the locks, changed her phone number, and shut me out of her life entirely. There were no phone calls. There were no cards. Because the loss of the mind does not have a ritual for mourning. And save for the support of my very close friends, and one of whom is here tonight, the loss of my entire family happened without a mention. What I did with that grief was not to know how to support somebody else in their difficult time, but it did make me know that it mattered. In our society, we're conditioned to think that being productive is how we contribute. And what one woman told me, whose child has a terrible, terrible disease, is that just by listening, people are really contributing to the conversation. How can we make our kindness manageable so that we actually show up? And sometimes you may not even be a very good listener. So what else can you do? You may not be around to listen. So that's where I devised the empathy menu. It's a roster of things that you can do to support somebody in a good time, in a difficult time. It could be cooking, it could be driving, it could be 
cleaning, it could be listening, it could be writing a really great card. But I did say cooking. And the thing is, is I hate to cook. You do not want my casserole, no matter how sick you are. And herein lies the beauty of the empathy menu, is that you pick from that empathy menu two to three things that you like to do, two to three things that actually give you joy to do. For example, I do like buying flowers. Getting to put together a bouquet, for me, that's some good me time. I can do that for somebody else. And no one is going to ask me. And that's the thing about kindness, is people do not ask you to be kind. You just have to offer it. But to offer it, you have to trust your authentic gift. So you pick from your empathy menu two to three things that you like to do and offer that gift. That small gift is adequate. And because we can be in a village where everyone offers a small gift, that adequate becomes awesome. Because adequate is better than nothing. <laughs>